You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 17th of December, 2018, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show... I can confirm today that we intend to return to the meaningful vote debate in the week commencing 7th of January and hold the vote the following week. British Prime Minister Theresa May sets a new date for the Brexit vote. Will this one actually go ahead? My guests Isabel Hilton and Robert Fox will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the U.S. Senate's resolution blaming Saudi Arabia's crown prince for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and the latest on the diplomatic row between Canada and China. All to come here on Midori House with me, Daniel Bage. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Robert Fox, defense editor for the London Evening Standard. Welcome both back to the program. Uh, we're going to begin in the U.S., where the Senate has passed resolutions to end the country's support to the war in Yemen and has blamed Saudi Arabia's crown prince, for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, of course, back in October in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Saudi Arabia, as expected, has denounced this vote, a very strong statement. First of all, Isabel, what did you make of that, uh, that statement that came out uh, sort of um, directly aimed at, uh, at the U.S. Senate? And both parties, it was quite a strong statement. Well, it was a strong statement, but I think that, you know, the, the Saudis are, are perhaps overconfident in, in the friendship of, of Trump and, and, and that side of the American administration. I mean, what the Senate did is, is you know, finally to acquire some backbone. It's mm. the first sign that the Republicans have been willing to, you know, say boo uh, to Trump and, and his, frankly, disastrous Middle East policy. Mm. And this goes back to... Um, Post uh, Vietnam, actually, when the Senate, uh, Vietnam having been such a disaster, the Senate wanted to affirm that the right to make war belonged to the Senate and not to the president, right. um, which meant that in Central America, for example, you had the whole kind of secret arms contra deal because there wasn't a proper way of financing it. So so it in some ways drove the action undercover. Nevertheless, it's an important reassertion of of the Senate's kind of or or of the you know the con- the congressional arm of of government which seems to have been completely enthralled to Trump mm. and I think it's it's just you know there there are so many troubles around Trump at the moment I think we're going to be seeing more of this mm. Robert what did you make uh, of this action uh, do you think anything uh, meaningful will come of it from the US and and um, were you surprised to see the sort of the Senate sort of you know rebuking Trump's take on uh, you know uh, support to Saudi Arabia. Well, what was surprising to, was to see uh, stalwart Republicans like Lindsey Graham and Mike Lee uh, lining up with Bernie Sanders. Mm. Um, uh, and this is very important. Uh, I could only support what everything that Isabel said, mm. but let's name names. This is the first, this is the most serious invocation of the 1973 War Powers Act. And you can't go back on that. It's like Tony Blair going to Parliament in 2003 and saying he's consulting, actually, for a warlike operation like mm. 2003, uh, any British Prime Minister will have to get the approval of Parliament. Mm. And the approval of Parliament, we're going to talk about in, an, in, in another instance over Brexit, is not to be sneezed at. Try so hard, though, executives may. Um, 
in the in this contest, and this is where I think uh, the kingdom has misspoken mm. um, about this. Who has most to lose? Has the U.S. more to lose than the kingdom of Saudi Arabia? The U.S. is not caught Trump, yeah. and this has been absolutely underlined by this. A very eloquent, very quietly spoken people like Lindsey Graham saying there are two arms to this, by the way. There's not only Khashoggi, which mm. I completely understand, but the egregious way in which the war has been pursued in Yemen, in which the principal victims have not been combatants mm. on both sides, have not been the proxies of Iran or Saudi Arabia or the UAE. It's been uh, the civilian population who have been destroyed, put upon in a way... And it's a very difficult comparison to make in a way that is top of the list for the region, including Somalia and Sudan. Mm. Well, what of that uh, that role in the Middle East? The Saudis, uh, in their statement, playing up what you might hear from Donald Trump a lot of the time, saying um, that uh, the Saudis play a vital role in sort of the power struggles of the Middle East. We, you know, have to have checks on Iran. Uh, what did you make? What do you make of that? Well, Iran is clearly a major obsession of this, both the Saudis and mm. this administration, and indeed Israel. So you, you you can line up, you know, the kind of the the, the Trump cast on that side. What role the Saudis play? I mean, it's not. It's certainly it, it, they've been a key part of 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 Middle East security policy as far as the U.S. is concerned. But you know, they can't. Actually, those planes can't fly mm. without without U.S. and indeed British uh, support. So, so you know, we could have stopped that war simply by refusing to support the the Saudi Air Force in this rather appalling bombing campaign. Mm. Um, so, I think we need to remind ourselves that you know, which way does the dependence go? What would Saudi Arabia do if it really lost the favour of the United States and and the United Kingdom and France, the other countries that have so far? Uh, with increasing trepidation, uh, supported their action. Their action is having disastrous consequences. It's not resolving anything. It's creating more mayhem, a terrible humanitarian disaster, images of which are beginning to appear on the front pages of Western newspapers. I can't see what's to be gained by, by supporting them. And we have at the weekend seen you know, the beginnings perhaps of a peace process, mm. a very fragile peace process, um, which which happened uh, despite the Americans. But interestingly, both the UAE and Saudi forces chose, despite the peace talks, despite a temporary ceasefire or ceasefire being agreed for the port of Hudaydah on December the 13th, they fought on, mm. including aerial bombing. Little thing that I'd like to add, it's a thing that, um, to use a Bushism, if it was Bush Jr., he would say misunderestimate, and I don't mean to be <laughs> facetious, but I do, um, that Trump has badly underestimated the UN. The UN, I've just been looking at the personnel that they've put in to deal, they're looking and being very eloquent because they're not overstating rule of journalism. The bigger the story, the more the understatement. These uh, people uh, that they have got, they have got uh, Martin Griffiths, yep. who's the special representative, and Mark Lowcock, the humanitarian overseer. Coincidentally, they are Brits, both of them. They are Brits of extreme 
extraordinary and bitter and deep experience mm. in this kind of thing. The other person is the Dutchman who's going in, Major General. He keeps on calling himself retired, but he's had to deal with a very, very nasty situation mm. in Sudan, Patrick Cummert. And I think the UN and all power to Gutierrez, because I think he's a really serious Secretary General. They've had enough of this. They really have had enough of this. Yeah. And there are enough really serious refugee situations which will be overshadowed by this for obvious reasons because it is so egregious what's going on in, in, in Yemen uh, that they mean business. What I sense, and I think the old pros, and we do have to account them as both, uh, Mike Pompeo and Jim Mattis, uh, I think although they were sent in to bat against Congress and say, no, this is wrong to pass these resolutions uh, against Saudi Arabia, they know yeah. that the US is becoming so seriously isolated in global diplomacy that it, it, it very soon, I agree with Isabel, I think it's going to be a, a crisis within the next few months. Hmm. Isabel, considering the timing of the of the peace uh, progress and and the the progress we're, we've just talked about, is this a good timing in the U.S. and will there be an impact in in moving forward in the peace process in Yemen? I mean, the resolutions just passed. Well, I think that <laughs> will come back to the White House. Yeah. You know, and and indeed the White House uh, is 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 going to be so preoccupied with so many troubles. Um, but I, I I would hope that that. The, you know, if there are any grown-ups uh, in the room, that this would lead to some serious questioning of, of you know, the son-in-law, the daughter, putting putting strategic interests of the nation in the hands of people who have really destroyed, you know, the capacity of the United States to hold the ring, to be seen as a kind of, as, as a neutral player, for example, with, with the Palestinian crisis, right. which is also deepening. You know, the troubles are mounting up and and the, the positive results are very few. So perhaps, you know, Trump, it's very hard to know what Trump will do uh, when he's really got his back against the wall. Uh, if he were smart, he would trade off one of these crises and this would be an obvious one to trade off because the others simply won't go away. Yeah. Uh, well, I wonder, Robert, if, if other countries will start to move uh, behind the U.S. even on this. You have Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying uh, he's been very careful on this file lately, but he has said, you know, we will move to end arms sales. And of course, that is, is much smaller than other countries, say Britain and the U.S. But will we see other countries sort of lining up in the way that the Senate has and, and, and uh, making a stand against Saudi Arabia? Funny enough, it's the awful B word. I think um, the Brexit crisis, which has so totally distracted mm. the May administration, one barely could imagine that she can even spell Yemen in her political lexicon um, uh, at the moment. I think that the pressure um, uh, from actually the liberal centrist left media in UK is beginning to have an effect. Mm. Crucial is France. Crucial is Germany, but the people I really applaud are the middle European nations like the Dutch, the Danes and the Swedes who mm. are really beginning to put the heat on this. And I think that this is where, uh, as Isabel was saying, that um, the personal initiative, the idea, I know how to make the deal, so therefore I get my daughter and my son-in-law involved of Trump and his approach to the Middle East yeah. and confronting the big enemy, Iran. Iran is succeeding in its aims, and it, 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 Yemen isn't a main effort for Iran, but what it wants to do in Syria with Iraq by 
not by stealth, but by not blabbing or boasting about it, they're succeeding in a way that is not even making the mainstream media, the mm. Washington Post, the Financial Times, uh, the, the News or Zeitung or whatever, the fact that they've built their own sheer army in Syria and so on. And that is the failure of um, the leader of the Western Alliance. He may not be the global leader, yeah. but Trump is the leader of the Western Alliance. And he doesn't seem to have a clue where he is at the moment. Mm. Well, certainly an interesting one. And we will be revisiting this topic as we as we do here on Monocle 24. But you did, Robert, mention the, the B word. So we do have to move on uh, to Brexit. Oh, uh, <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately. But uh, you know, it's, it's almost unavoidable, an unavoidable topic at this time. And, and today, the UK's Prime Minister, Theresa May, has been urging MPs not to back a second referendum on EU membership, claiming it would break the public's faith on the government. Isabel, you laugh there, but do, do <laughs> we, do, is there faith in the government? I, 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 have you ever seen, have you seen faith in the government lately? I, 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 I think I think faith in the government left town quite a long time ago. I mean, the other, the other argument is that, that it's somehow undemocratic to have mm. another vote. You think, well, if voting once was democratic, voting twice might be twice as good. Right. Um, but but essentially, the, I think that, that obviously the Brexiteers oppose a second referendum in case they lose it, uh, which would be uh, it, disastrous for their project. Uh, why Mrs. May? You know, is I think she's like a rabbit in the headlines. If she, mm. she thinks if she keeps on saying, you know, no to every reasonable route forward, somehow things will be all right. And they won't be. This is the most catastrophic failure mm. of both political parties and how the Labour Party, at a moment when, you know, I have never seen a more wretched government, could be losing support as well. Yeah. You really have to hand it to them. That takes talent. Uh, have we uh, avoided a Christmas catastrophe, as it were, by, by pushing this into January, Robert? <laughs> is, is, is that helpful at all? Will, uh, you know, heads, cooler heads prevail by the time we get to the new year? Or is this, is this uh, a disaster? Not very. They haven't helped themselves over mm. much. In fact, they've unhelped themselves by this. It's Sherlock Holmes, isn't it? Mm. There's um, nothing so deceptive as the obvious fact. It's very interesting how the Conservative Party and the Conservative government, for very obvious reasons, and others involved, and the, the Brexiteers, do not want... Uh, moving away from the referendum because... Uh, back to old Sherlock again, because... It might, it just might, I hope it will, invoke forensic examination of what really went on last time. Hmm. And there are three points that you can make. Uh, false prospectus. There was an awful lot of lies. Um, the fact of where the strange money went backing it. And my understanding, and I'm only partly away in personal investigations through colleagues of this, that the Mueller inquiry into a Russian interference or other into the Trump campaign through agencies like Cambridge Analytica, and I am very careful about this, may turn up some stuff mm. about what went on in terms of algorithms, dirty tricks, targeting, and so on. And really, the way that this has not been examined... Uh, except by a very, very few, uh, in which, amongst whom I include my, I have to say, a very good friend as well as a colleague, Carol Codwallader, an astonishing one-woman investigative mm. effort. Uh, I think this is very important. The other thing is the constitutional nonsense, the Alice in Wonderland constitutional nonsense. One vote, 
June 2016 and you don't have it again. Yeah. Arsenal was beaten 3-2 by Southampton yesterday. <laughs> they should never play again. Southampton, we've won. We've won forever. Yeah. This is the logic of the uber-Brexiteers as to why you should never have it again. Um, the fact is they never sp- they speak for the 17 million plus who voted for it. No consideration of the 16 million who voted against, plus those who didn't turn out, plus those who now come onto the register. And the final point, my third point, is the lawyer's maxim. Mm. Circumstances alter cases. And as Isabel has explained so eloquently... Oh, boy, the circumstances have changed. And that is the case, that this is a major constitutional crisis for the UK because for the, we are seeing the failure, not just of political parties, they've always failed in the past, but of Parliament. Mm. I think that's a very interesting mm. one. And, and, you know, I... I'm rather enjoying this crisis in a hideous, quizzy way. Uh, because, you know, the point of a crisis is what you get out of it and what you learn from it. And what we've learned from this is that one, you know, referenda, a very silly way to de- you know, try to decide something like that, that we know. But the other thing that we've learned is that actually our political system is really so past its sell-by date. It can no Agreed. longer come to a decision on the most important thing that we are facing. So we have... The two main parties, the big choice that any of us would face in an election, uh, which are non-functioning coalitions, which are utterly divided on this. I don't know what the Labour Party position is, and I'm not sure that they do. So, you know, it was always argued, for example, that first past the post had its flaws, but it delivered stability and you knew where you were. No longer true. This is is instability on Mm. steroids. And that if one good thing comes out of this, you know, however this crisis unfolds and we're a long way from the end of it, I think that perhaps the next time we try to take a hard look at whether our political system is delivering for people, we might get a little further down the road of some constitutional reform. Mm. Uh, Sounds incredibly arrogant. Isabel and I have been in journalism quite a long time. But what I feel I've been looking at, and ever since I, I, I began studying history, which I suppose was when I was in short trousers, that what we're looking at here is the desperate need for a constitutional laxative mm. because <laughs> it needs absolutely to be blown out because it's not only we're seeing the failure of the House of Commons yeah. and, 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 and the voting system. What on earth is the House of Lords about? The BBC, by the way, which is not an observer, it is, the, it is a participant in, in, in this for very interesting, some obvious, but some very complicated subliminal reason. They're forever wheeling out people who might have been from the House of Lords, who elected them to the House of Lords. And we have got also an imbalance, which is a a technical problem, but of huge moment, uh, of, of the judiciary, where the judiciary for very good reasons, have to pronounce on an awful lot of things, and particularly in this one, because it is about the legal bonds of a treaty. But some of the judiciary of personal knowledge, friendship and acquaintance are simply unequipped to talk about things. And I'm talking about the bit that is not being discussed about so much, security, terrorism, resilience and so on. They just don't know. I mean, I haven't got much of a clue, but I am, as the Italians would say, a journalism distrader of the street. I go out and talk to lots and lots of different people. 
they don't, mm. and they don't really know what's going on. And this, and, and this is this is the really worrying moment. And this is where there is a parallel with France. France is going through a process which was described in a word of the 14th century, mm. a jacquerie. A jacquerie is a spontaneous explosion from below, without much coordination of leadership or program. And it happened in the great civil wars of France in the 14th mm. century, but it is used again. It's amazing with the Gilets Jaunes how it's been uh, invoked again. It's now a common term. You read it across French papers, yeah. you read it in The Economist. And when you hear the rhetoric of the likes of true populists, give the people what the people want, but yeah. I'm not re really clear what it, it means, like, like Boris Johnson, it is actually the language of the Jacquerie sure. again. So something, something much bigger, I think, than even Westminster understands is on the move here. Mm. Uh, well, fantastic uh, analysis, both. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. Coming up, the latest on the diplomatic spat between Ottawa and Beijing. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's the Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, a Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bage, Isabel Hilton, and Robert Fox. We'll turn our attention now to the diplomatic row between the U.S. and China, which most recently has involved Canada in a way Canada is certainly not interested in being involved in. Earlier this month, Canadian authorities arrested uh, Meng Wanzhou, Huawei's chief financial officer and a daughter of the company's founder. She was arrested in Vancouver at the behest of American prosecutors, and the extradition process has begun. While the timing looked suspicious because of Donald Trump's tense relationship with China, many signs point to the in fact the investigation was set in motion many years ago under the Obama administration, cracking down on Chinese firms on security grounds. Uh, and to continue getting you up to speed, uh, Meng was charged with conspiracy to defraud multiple financial institutions allegedly conducting business in Iran through a subsidiary in contravention of U.S. sanctions, of course. Uh, Isabel, how concerned do you think Ottawa is over, over the way uh, they're being caught up in this? Of course, there are two Canadians being held in China. Uh, how, how pressing an issue is this, do you think, for the Canadians? I think the Canadians are quite rightly pretty fed up. Uh, you know, there's, there's this famous expression, when elephants fight, the grass gets trampled, and I'm afraid, mm. you know, Canada's the grass in this instance. All Canada did was the perfectly um, reasonable um, thing of, of responding to a, a request from a New York District Court uh, for the arrest of uh, Meng Wanzhou on charges which would come up in an extradition hearing, which we haven't yet had. Yeah. We've had the bail hearing and some of the charges were aired then. It seems 
pretty clear. As you say, this is a very solid case that has been going for two years. And one, and the reason it seems that the arrest was finally triggered was that HSBC, the bank, um, which had been done for violating sanctions on Iran before mm. and therefore had a supervisor in the bank monitoring transactions, and therefore they were pretty concerned about transactions they couldn't explain. Yeah. They had reported this to the U.S. authorities. Now, Meng had, was a, a, a director of the of the company concerned. Um, they pretended that it was a separate company, but, you know, there are reports of, of people visiting that company and finding people with Huawei badges on, you know, <laughs> kind of working, allegedly, for a separate company. So, you know, at the very least, on on the, on the what we know so far, there's there's a case to answer. Um, but, but, of course, the, 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 the Chinese authorities who may not wish to go full frontal with with the Americans at this point because mm. they are in the middle of a trade negotiation which the Chinese wish to see succeed, are simply lashing out at Canada to appease the outrage of the of you know the nationalist sentiment at home in China. Huawei is a big iconic brand in yeah. China. Uh, people feel you know deeply proud of it. You might it's like saying to a Californian, you know, what do you think of Apple? You know, it, yeah. it has that kind of standing, and and it's one of of China's few really global champions. So, you know, there is emotion um, and the sense that, you know, justice could touch one of China's elite is always a bit of a shock <laughs> to China's elite. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, they poor Canadians got hit uh, when they were actually following judicial procedure rather correctly and yeah. have now given her bail. Meanwhile, you know, two unfortunate Canadian citizens, both of them, as far as we know, upright citizens, one of them a former diplomat, have been detained on quote-unquote national security grounds, which in China is a charge that can land you into very hot water indeed, and, and you know, in which there is no transparency, in which there has been, you know, as far as I know, no 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 access to lawyers, and, and only one consular access. So, you know, if we're looking at process, mm. I would certainly rather be arrested in, in Canada uh, than in China. What is further of, of concern to the Canadians is that Trump, in his inimitable fashion, has suggested that he could drop the charges against Meng Wanzhou, which are not his charges to drop, mm. as the Justice Department has pointed out, um, if if it would be good for the trade deal, which would leave the Canadians absolutely high and dry. Yeah. You know, what what what? where does that leave them? Yeah. What Trump should be doing is saying it's outrageous that the Canadians have been arrested rather than, than offering to bargain with with a, a judicial case which ought to be let to follow its course. One of the best images I saw out of this was it was a cartoon of Donald Trump uh, holding a beaver over the mouth of a, a dragon below. Uh, do you think uh, the Chinese continue to, to pressure Robert Canada to, to see this resolved in the way they want it? I think they'll seek any advantage they can. They're playing hardball and they play a much longer game than, than, than Trump. Um, the elephant, probably just a calf elephant at the moment in the room, of course, is Iran. And Iran and the sanctions regime, it is such a tangle. And um, this is one that Trump is not going to win. It goes back to our first item we were talking about, uh, Yemen, uh, the Middle East, I I Iraq, what's going on in Syria. You may not like what Iran is up to. To, to concentrate on Yemen as just as a proxy of Iran is completely wrong. But um, there's no win-win for Trump in the long term with Iran 
given the way he's playing. Mm. And one of the things we said, I'm sorry, I've, I've gone off the Hawaii um, uh, case here, but one of the things that he's misplaying is, uh, which he thought he could do with the art of the deal, which does relate to, Chi- to Canada, by the way, is that he's misplaying um, uh, Israel in this case. Where Isabel is right, the thing that I feel very, very strongly about, infer from the pattern of Trump's personal diplomacy, the art of the deal, he doesn't care a damn about allies, really. And this is very, very unusual indeed. He behaves as if he's a sort of rough rider, he's a Teddy Roosevelt, you know, that I can, I can, I can, I can make the weather, I can do this. This is the globalised world. This is the world of which he is not only the progenitor, but he's also the victim. Mm. The world of Twitter, the bite back in the 140 or 280 character riposte. The other, the other thing that I think is is fueling Chinese uh, the the vehemence of the Chinese reaction against Canada is pour encourager les autres. Yeah. You know, the nastier they are to Canada, yeah. now the the less likely a, a relatively small country is going to be to move with a similar request for the arrest of a of a prominent Chinese in in any way, and I think that that is just you know preemptive bullying on on the part of of China. Again, it does doesn't bode particularly well for Canada or the Canadian detainees. Mm. Well, last word to you, Isabel. Uh, massive implications on global markets we've seen out of this. Uh, uh, of course, the souring of diplomatic relations. But how do you see this playing out next? Well, I suppose the thing, I mean, one there, there are two things to watch. One is what happens with the, the U.S.-China uh, negotiations. The Chinese are making a lot of effort to appear to be changing the system and opening it up and so on. Um, I, I would wait and see on that one. But mm. will they give enough? The Americans have 40 pages of demands. That's a lot. And there is a limit to what China can do. And and I would hope that, you know, at some point the, the US and indeed Canada's allies and countries that do care about the functioning of the, of the international system yeah. would, uh, you know, jointly put pressure on Canada and say, you simply can't do this. I mean, you've had one Interpol scandal with Canada, with, excuse me, with China, in yeah. which the head of Interpol went back to China and vanished. Um, so, you know, we're not it's not a great record on upholding mm. rule of law. The same attitude to justice that personally Donald Trump does. You know, In, well, that that's part. That is the problem. That's yeah, right. Yeah, but I yeah. think it's up to those who think yeah. that the system really matters and needs to be to be upholded to to act jointly on this yeah. and come to Canada's defence. Well, thank you so much for the fantastic analysis. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Isabel Hilton and Robert Fox, thank you so much for joining us here again at Midori House. Today's show produced by Carlotta Rabello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Gabriela DeSante, and Nick Moniz. Our studio manager, David Stevens. There is more music next, and then at 1900 hours, it is the Monocle Culture Show with Robert Bound. And we have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. That is with host Emma Nelson. Midori House back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time, 1300 in Toronto. I'm Daniel Bache. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.